Good evening. Welcome to the opening lecture, uh, the opening of a series of evening lectures in Rare Book School 1989. Those of you, and uh, there are several, uh, those of you who have been here before know that I am usually standing in the back of the room at this point and that Terry Bellinger is introducing the speaker. But uh, this year, Terry Bellinger, who is associate professor at the School of Library Service at Columbia and who is usually the director of Rare Book School, is on sabbatical. However, as you have all been informed, Terry has something on his mind which he proposes to reveal in a series of four lectures, uh, each one to be given in the four weeks of Rare Book School. I should mention that these are four different lectures, although there will be some, a few repetitive elements in each one, but they um, form a series and they build upon one another. This is the first one. Terry. My story begins on the old Columbia campus at 49th Street and Madison Avenue in Manhattan, where in 1883, a substantial new library building was nearing completion. Columbia President Frederick A. Barnard realized he would have to do something about his bumbling college librarian, the Reverend Beverly Robinson Betts, who was then managing to keep the present library building at Columbia open a total of three hours a day. Mr. Betts was summarily made to retire, and Barnard appointed the 32-year-old Melville Dewey to the post of librarian of Columbia College in his stead. Dewey wasted no time in effecting a thorough reform of the libraries he found at Columbia. The current library staff was dismissed en bloc so that Dewey could develop an entirely new core of assistants. From the beginning, he planned to develop his own school for the training of librarians, and the Columbia School of Library Economy, the world's first library school, opened its doors in 1887, just over a century ago. Melville Dewey's preoccupation was with library service. He saw the library as an institution which was the logical extension of the public school system, a place where adult citizens could continue their educations on their own on an individual and independent basis. Through his efforts, and that of others in his generation, the New American Library Association likewise committed itself to increasing public awareness of and access to libraries to long hours of opening, for example, including evening and weekend hours, and to open stack collections in place of the traditional closed stack system. Growing dismay with the American Library Association's preoccupation with service at the expense, it was thought, of more scholarly matters, was one of the forces which led to the creation of the Bibliographical Society of America in 1902. The BSA developed, especially in its early decades, as an organization parallel to the ALA. 
and for many years its annual conference was held in the same place and time as that of the ALA annual conference so that members could attend both meetings. Over time, the BSA became a more central organization than the ALA for persons with bibliographical or bookish as opposed to administrative interests in librarianship. It tended particularly to attract members from the library staffs of the historical societies and from the independent research libraries that had been springing up in various parts of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Until well into the present century, there were virtually no rare book departments within academic libraries in this country, though the steady expansion of universities in the period before the beginning of the Depression and the concomitant steady growth of their library collections was beginning to create a need for them in order to prevent the abuse of fragile, valuable, and rare items, not only by readers, but also by library staff members. In this connection, one thinks immediately of Randolph G. Adams' celebrated piece, Librarians as Enemies of Books, published in the Library Quarterly in 1937. Writing five years later in 1941, the year I was born, by the way, the then librarian of Harvard College, Kais Metcalf, mapping out the arithmetic of open stack collections, suggested that if the average open stack collection grows by 4% a year, then its corollary non-circulating collection will grow at double that rate, or 8% per year, as the result both of gifts and purchases and of transfers from the general collection. Forty years from now, Metcalf concluded in 1941, that is, by the 1980s, 20% of our academic library collections will be in treasure rooms. Eventually, he thought, open stack collections would be in some danger of defeating themselves entirely, with treasure rooms gobbling up ever greater parts of their holdings and space. Kais Metcalf was not alone in predicting the growth of rare book rooms. A year later, 1942, William Warner Bishop observed that for a quarter of a century and more, it has been plain to thoughtful observers that one serious administrative consequence of the ever-growing direct use of books by persons granted admission to the shelves has been the increasing necessity providing for providing protection to, rare book, to book rarities. It followed, said Bishop, that the training of rare book curators was also becoming of great importance. Depend on it, he concluded, the growth of general and university libraries is bound to produce more and more keepers of rare books. By the end of the Second World War, the growth of rare book collections was a subject of considerable interest in the library profession. Writing in 1955, Frederick B. Adams, then director of the Morgan Library, observed that just 25 years earlier, that is in 1930, the rare book rooms in American college and university libraries could be counted on one's fingers. The growth of rare book operations was caused, Adams noted, in large part as the result of the steady donation of rare materials to colleges and universities, a generosity strengthened by income tax laws which made such gifts financially attractive. Adams saw the need for a new race of what he called professional bibliophiles to staff these new rare book operations. Defining a professional bibliophile as a person trained in the use of books and manuscripts who has an abiding faith in their importance and a veneration for them as physical objects. 
Adams suggested that such persons were best found in graduate schools giving advanced training in the arts and sciences rather than in library schools. Since the ideal rare book curator was, in his opinion, more akin to the scholar than to the technically trained librarian. Curators, Adams thought, could learn what they needed to know about library matters by brief indoctrination at a library school followed by working visits to established rare book collections. Here Adams reflects a popular sentiment about the training of scholarly librarians which extends right across 20th century American thinking on the subject that library schools cannot do the job. Library school educators have themselves for decades been puzzling over this problem. Speaking at a 1938 conference on the library of tomorrow, for example, Sidney Mitchell, dean of the Berkeley Library School, wryly asked, are we still not noticeably short of scholarly librarians, of staffs which measure up to their materials for scholarship, of men and women to whom the teaching and research scholars are willing often even to concede a real understanding of scholarship and its requirements, let alone acknowledge them as active aides or participants in productive scholarship. At the same 1938 conference, Henry M. Riston, president of Brown University, was even blunter. Too often, he said, the academic librarian is seen as an officer of administration, whereas he ought to be seen as an officer of instruction. The least important qualification of the librarian, Riston said, is his training. The library degree is not necessary if other qualities, ideas, energy, resourcefulness, are present. And two decades still later, in 1961, Rollo Silver, then professor at the Simmons Library School in Boston, is still doubtful that library schools will ever be able to train scholarly librarians adequately. First, because students entering library school are insufficiently trained in languages and culture, omissions which cannot be repaired in a one-year program. And second, because the time needs of the library school's core curriculum prevent much specialization of any sort within that one-year period. Since 1961, the literature has been rather silent on the subject of where, of where rare book librarians are to come from, though there has been some interesting discussion by Alexandra Mason and others of the proper training of rare book librarians once they do get to school, library school or otherwise. But of course, rare book librarians do come from somewhere. Indeed, more than 200 of them showed up at the first ACRL Rare Books and Manuscripts pre-conference held in Charlottesville in 1959, almost exactly 30 years ago. And that number and more have continued to show up at the annual RBMS pre-conferences pretty much ever since. Where do rare book librarians come from? A number of American alternatives have presented themselves throughout the 20th century. Rare book librarians can be recruited from the world of scholarship, faculty members. They can come from the ranks of professional bibliography and the antiquarian book trade. They may on occasion be book collectors interested in library work and willing to bring their collections with them. Librarians presently working in other divisions of the library can be transferred to the rare book room. And rare book librarians can be trained by library schools. Each of these alternatives has routinely been employed, 
in the, throughout the 20th century, as indeed they still are today, in finding rare book personnel in libraries. And at this point, it may be useful to describe each one of these options in somewhat greater detail in citing examples. First, the world of scholarship. The tradition of the scholar-librarian is an old one in this country, both in academe proper and, and indeed especially, in the historical society libraries and other special subject collections. At the turn of the century, scholars ran research libraries for the evident reason that they were familiar with the contents of these libraries. They knew what libraries were for. Librarianship was a simpler business technically a century ago than it is now, and a much less interconnected one as well. As an academic, you could step into a directorship, especially of an academic library, and find your way about fairly quickly. Our concern at the moment, however, is with rare book collections as such, and few libraries had segregated rare book collections until well into the 20th century, or staff with duties specifically restricted to rare books. As the librarian of the John Carter Brown Library, for example, Lawrence C. Roth had both general and specialist duties, a fact which he well recognized. Writing at the end of his career in 1957, he observed, the identity or function of the rare book library with that of the general library, the necessity of using the library science procedures of the general library, means that its head is basically a librarian and that he should keep in close touch through the library associations with the concepts and developments of his profession. He need not approve all the acts of these organizations, but he should not separate himself from their aspirations. Roth knew that most rare book collections reflect the nature of their parent institutions. As Henry M. Riston, whom I have quoted before, the president of his own Brown University, put it in 1939, noting that libraries cannot rise much higher than the source of their energy. They cannot perform effective services at variance with the programs of their parent institutions. Professors interested in improving the libraries of their institutions could be very effective indeed, as Chauncey Brewster Tinker at Yale proved. Tinker worked closely with the Yale Library in order to attract the donation of rare and scholarly collections to Haven. In a famous speech delivered at Yale on Alumni Day, 1924, he warned, if we are not willing to compete with the best libraries in the country, it is folly for us to attempt to be one of the great universities. For scholars and teachers, graduate students, and at last, undergraduate students will go where the books are. Professor Tinker became the first keeper of rare books at Yale in the then brand new Sterling Library in 1930 and Yale became spectacularly successful at attracting both collections and collectors. A later and equally successful professorial, later provostial friend of libraries, was Harry Ransom at the University of Texas. Academics are still routinely lured into academic rare book library work, especially at the upper end of the administrative spectrum. In the recent past, one need look no further than at Yale or Princeton and the examples of Professor Louis Martz and Richard Ludwig. Professorial types are even more likely to turn up at the head of independent research libraries. Gundersheimer follows Hardison, follows Wright, follows Adams at the Folger. Cullen follows Towner, follows Pargellis at the Newberry. Peirce follows Ricecamp, follows Adams at the Morgan. The examples are everywhere. 
These are the persons that Frederick Adams had in mind when he spoke of a race of professional bibliophiles. And it's clear that his call has been answered. Academics have dominated the directorships of the independent research libraries in this country throughout their existence, and they are prominent as well as heads of academic collections, viz. the recent appointment of Professor Richard Wendorf of Northwestern University as head of the Houghton Library at Harvard. The academic tradition is, however, not the only one on which rare book librarianship has been able to draw. Another important source of personnel over the past century has been the world of bibliography and rare books, the antiquarian book trade, the world of the bookman. Indeed, Edwin Wolfe, no inconsiderable bookman librarian himself, says that the modern rare book librarian begins with the appointment of Wilberforce Eames as librarian of the Lennox Library in 1893. Eames, born in 1855, worked as a printer and as a bookseller as a young man, but he soon became absorbed in American bibliography and took over the task of continuing Sabin's Bibliotheca Americana upon Sabin's death in 1881. Eventually, he became head of the American History Division of the New York Public Library in its new building on 42nd Street. Eames's formal education had ended in grammar school. Nevertheless, one of his obituary notices in 1937 cited him as one of the four or five best educated men in the world. Thomas R. Adams defined the Bookman librarian very well indeed. This was, he said, a new class of men and women who began to raise their kind of scholarship to a new eminence, standing between the library and scholarly professions they took of a little of each. William Jackson, for instance, graduated from Williams College and shortly thereafter spent several years cutting his bibliographical teeth as he compiled the massive catalog of the Forzheimer Library. From the Forzheimer, he went to Harvard, where he became the head of the new Houghton Library, a post which he occupied until his unexpected death in the mid-60s. Other examples of Bookman librarians spring readily to mind. Herman W. Liebert at Yale, for instance, David Randall for many years, an antiquarian bookseller, and then the first librarian of the Lilly Library at Indiana University, Robert Cowan at the Clark Library at UCLA, and so on. One attractive aspect of bookman librarians is their closeness to private book collectors, that great source of donations of books or money to buy them to libraries. Cecil K. Byrd of Indiana University was very clear on this point. Writing in 1957, he declared, when the history of rare book programs in universities is fully explored, it likely will be revealed that the collector was the greatest single factor in urging or even forcing rare book facilities on libraries. Collectors have themselves become rare book librarians. Arthur Houghton, briefly at the Library of Congress, for example, or William K. Speck, who took his great Goethe collection with him to Yale in 1912. Collectors have also been willing to serve in semi-honorary capacities within libraries. Philip Hofer at Harvard and James Osborne and others at Yale come immediately to mind. In addition to the scholar librarian and the bookman librarian and the collector librarian, a further model may be identified, a pure strain, if you will, of career librarian, plain and simple. Librarians willing to admit to themselves that they are librarians, though with strong rare book interests. 
This class routinely consists of individuals who came to prominence through their positions as librarians rather than as scholars or bookmen or collectors who moved to library work in middle or later life. The pure strain goes right back to the beginning of the century. Fanny Ratchford became librarian of the rare book collections at the University of Texas in 1919. Marjorie Wynn's career at Yale began in 1942. After taking a library degree at Columbia in 1954, Marcus A. McCorrison became chief of the rare book department at Dartmouth, then head of special collections in Iowa, before moving to the American Antiquarian Society as librarian in 1960 and director and librarian in 1967. William Matheson's library degree is from the University of Washington, and he came back to the Library of Congress after beginning there by way of the Lilly Fellowship Program, to which I shall return shortly, and the Rare Book Department of Washington University in St. Louis. Professional rare book librarians have prospered in recent years, especially in the large academic libraries. Wendorf at Harvard, yes, but Warrington at Harvard as well. Strite at Brown, Joyce at Princeton, Traster at Penn, Schreier at Delaware, to take only some of the closest examples at hand. Often, like Joyce and Traster and Schreier, they have subject doctorates as well as library degrees, but by no means always. And frequently, they went to library school because of an interest in rare book work and in the belief that the library degree would in fact facilitate their entry into the profession. At least until recently, however, the most pervasive model for the training of rare book librarians in this country has been that of the on-the-job apprenticeship rather than through the library schools. If you wanted to become a rare book librarian, you got a job in a rare book library and you stayed alert. And over the years, a number of academic institutions, especially but not only those with library schools, have set up more or less formal internships, usually on a part-time basis, to encourage beginners. Perhaps the most fully articulated rare book library internship program was that of the Lilly Library at Indiana University in the 1960s. In this program, two fellows were chosen each year to spend uh, an academic year working under David Randall and his staff, observing rare book librarians in action, planning exhibitions, and making field trips to New York City and elsewhere to see the operation of auctions and the antiquarian book trade. The program came to an end in the early 1970s, in part because of the deteriorating health of Dave Randall and in part because of difficulty in finding external funding. A total of about 15 students went through this program in all. Now, Rollo G. Silver has observed that working rare book librarians, especially those who do not have library degrees themselves, tend to be suspicious of library schools and of the education they provide. Suspicious because library school graduates too often come to them for jobs without anything like a proper preparation for work with rare books. Silver does hold out some hope for rare book library training within a library school context, however. At present, he says, writing in 1961, the only workable approach to the problem of advanced courses would be a summer term. If the proper program were arranged, there would be enough interest to warrant it occasionally. A summer session combining classwork and informal discussions among students and experts might turn out to be, in effect, a junior institute for advanced study. 
I regret that though I read Rollo Silver's 1961 article in the early 70s when I first got into my present business, <clears throat> by 1983 I'd completely forgotten that he had called for the creation of a summer rare book school. And thus, I have never talked to him about my possible role as a latter-day Walt Whitman to his prophetical Ralph Waldo Emerson. This does seem a sensible time, however, to turn to a discussion of the various programs associated over the past 15 years or so with the Columbia University School of Library Service. Now, Columbia Library School has always had a rare book tradition. George Watson Cole, Henry Huntington's librarian, was a member of the class of 1888, Somewhat more recently, one need only mention the names of Marion Schild, Herbert Cahoon, Ruth Mortimer, or Jean Peters to demonstrate a long-standing tradition here of producing distinguished rare book personnel. To say nothing of such faculty members, to name only deceased ones, as Roly Bowman, Bertha Frick, Gerhard and Catherine Gerlach, Alan Hazen, Philip Hofer, Carl Koop, Harry Leidenberg, Frederick Melcher, John Clyde Oswald, George Salter, Frederick Ward, Frank Weidenkampf, and Donald Wing. My own part of the story begins in the 1970-71 academic year when I was invited at three weeks' notice to take over a course at the School of Library Service in the literature of the humanities for Alan Hazen, who had just suffered a heart attack. I had recently completed my doctorate in 18th century English literature at Columbia, working with professors James Clifford, John Middendorf, and Hazen on the London book trade and the development of copyright. And I was now teaching part-time as a lecturer in the English department in what Mary Dobby used to refer to as the lower end of the orchard. I taught advanced prose composition, which was, of course, remedial prose composition. <laughs> Richard Darling the new dean of the School of Library Service, then invited me to take up a two-thirds lectureship in the school in the 1971-72 academic year in order to take over Professor Hazen's descriptive bibliography course and to continue on with the literature of the humanities. And in the spring of 1972, I was offered a full-time assistant professorship at the school with a brief to develop a program for the training of rare book librarians. My own review of the literature of education for rare books librarianship, some of which I have already described to you, suggested to me in 1971 that the common thread of rare book librarianship was its custodial aspect. Rare book librarians are responsible for physical objects and not simply for intellectual constructs or manifestations. Most of the physical objects in rare book departments, though admittedly by no means all of them, consist of some form of ink printed onto some form of paper and then enclosed in some form of protective enclosure. I realized that rare book librarians are also united by their administrative duties within the larger institutions in which they work, by their need to understand the principles of cataloging, by the urgent preservation and conservation demands of the objects in their care, and by their obligation to make their holdings known but I had never worked in a rare book library except as a reader, nor did I have a library degree. It seemed the prudent course to concentrate my own teaching on descriptive matters having to do with the physical book, in particular, format and collation, the vocabulary of rare books, type, paper, printing, binding, and book illustration. 
This meant that I had some things to learn, type, paper, printing, binding, and book illustration, not being subjects which loomed particularly large in my own program of graduate studies in the Columbia English Department. At the same time, it seemed essential to improve my acquaintance among rare book librarians and my knowledge of what they did for a living. And accordingly, I began traveling fairly extensively around this country, Canada, and in England, visiting rare book operations, and on occasion writing about them in the bibliography newsletter, an occasional periodical which I began to produce as an independent venture in 1973. Long-suffering bin subscribers will be pleased to know that the journal has just now had a new lease on life under the direction of Brian Johnson of the class of 1979 in Blacksburg, Virginia. Expect great things. Back at SLS, in 1972, the school was fortunate enough to hire Professor Susan Otis Thompson on a full-time basis to teach the history of the book and related subjects. Our course in Rare Book Library Administration was at first taught by Kenneth Loth, head of Columbia's Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and later by Gerald Gottlieb of the Pierpont Morgan Library. In recent years, the instructor has been William Joyce, Associate Librarian for Rare Books and Special Collections at Princeton. In March 1972, Richard Darling turned over room 512 Butler Library to me for use as a physical, excuse me, turned over 512 Butler to me for use as a bibliographical laboratory. It's now Dean Carol Learmont's office. And the Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Columbia very kindly lent us two 19th century iron presses an 1830 London-built Imperial Press, which came to Columbia with the American Type Founders Company Library, and an 1843 R. Hohen Company Washington Press, given to the university by the American Bible Society some years later, plus some old type and printing house equipment that had been lying around since the 1930s and 40s when Columbia University librarians Helmut Lehmannhaupt Alice Bunnell and others had established an informal bibliographical laboratory within the rare book department here, which they called the Book Arts Press. And that's where the name came from. I was extremely lucky in the early 70s of having a group of students interested either professionally or avocationally in rare books who helped me make the revived Book Arts Press go. They included Grace Ann DeCandido and her husband Robert, Abigail Lewis, John Peters, Doris Ann Sweet, Barbara Sutherland, Rachel Center, Irene Titchener, and Peter Van Wingen. We formed a loose organization called the Printers of the Book Arts Press and sold Christmas cards out the front door for several years in order to accumulate enough money to buy a sufficient quantity of 14-point monotype Caslon type in sorts to begin bibliographical projects. Richard Darling had given us space, but no money. Formal labs began in my descriptive bibliography classes in the 1974-75 year. And Sam Streit may remember making a line cut of a Doric column in one of his labs that year. As his classmates, John Bidwell, Inga DuPont, Carolyn Hover-Schimmel, Clark Kimball, Bruce McKittrick, Charles McNamara, and Alice Schreier certainly do remember. In 1974, Maurice Annenberg gave us about 50 fonts of wood type, the first major gift to the program, and one which enabled the production of posters advertising the public evening lectures that we began to sponsor on bookish subjects. You can see some of them there. The Annenberg wood type 
also inspired the first Book Arts Press Valentine's Day Thought for 1975, again, originally generated as a money-raising device. The 1975 thought, 60% of all mammals are nocturnal. Uh, succeeded in 1976 by even Clark Kent, I beg your pardon, even Superman is Clark Kent most of the time. You can see some of the more recent thoughts in room 511 after this lecture. The Book Arts Press moved to its present location in 502 Butler Library in the summer of 1975. It had, until just before then, been the center of the Navy ROTC classroom instruction on campus, a program which did not survive the 60s here. <laughs> the Friends of the Book Arts Press came into existence in 1976 with 12 members. And this, and this support group's rapid growth quickly put us in a position where we could finance as many evening lectures as we could find speakers and audiences for. Soon enough, we found ourselves running an informal and later quite a formal lecture bureau, especially for visiting British speakers, helping to get the word out about prospective tours and coordinating dates. Among our star touring speakers have been our rare book school regulars, James Mosley and Nicholas Pickwode, our most recent speaker being Christopher Ridgway, the librarian at Castle Howard in York, whom we met through Nicholas Pickwode, and who spoke under our auspices last fall at the Grolier Club, the Canadian Center for Architecture in Montreal, the University of Vermont, Princeton, the University of Kentucky, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Pittsburgh Bibliophiles, the Friends of the University of California at Santa Barbara, the Book Collectors of Los Angeles, Stanford, the Book Club of California in San Francisco, the University of Pennsylvania, and at the University of Toronto, as well as, of course, to the Friends of the Book Arts Press, 14 cities in 58 days. At the moment, there are about 400 members of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, of whom about 20 are close friends. The distinction is a financial one. But I am ahead of myself again and need to return to the later 1970s, when it suddenly became clear that I was not going to get tenure at Columbia, in part on the grounds that I had made an insufficient contribution to scholarship. As it turned out, I was dosy-doed into a full-time administrative position at the school as assistant dean. My teaching was restricted to descriptive bibliography, but by this point, various sections of the course, both formal sessions in group of about 10 students and laboratory sessions in groups of four to six, were routinely meeting from 14 to 16 hours per week in the fall semester and 12 hours per week in the spring. As a result, at least from the middle distance, I didn't look very different as assistant dean from what I had as assistant professor. The conservation and preservation programs of the School of Library Service began in the fall of 1981 under the direction of Professor Paul Banks with their own excellent suite of laboratories across campus in Skirmahorn. Our program in archives and manuscripts took a great leap forward in the fall of 1983 when Susan Davis and Robert Sink both then of the New York Public Library, began to teach a two-semester sequence, a lecture course in the fall followed by field work in the spring, with a third course in administration taught by Bill Joyce in our regular summer session. Davis and Sink continued to teach their very popular courses together until last year when Susan Davis moved to Wisconsin, 
leaving Robert Sink to continue to do the honors alone. It's a pleasure to reunite this extremely successful team on the faculty of Rare Book School 1989. Rare Book School began in the summer of 1983 with eight courses, two per week, offered over a four-week period. Projected capacity enrollment that first year was 120 students. And in the event, to our considerable surprise, we had 113, including the infant Martin Antonetti, John Bidwell, and Susie Taraba. <laughs> the 17 faculty members in Rare Book School 1983 included Sue Allen, Christopher Clarkson, Carolyn Harris, Paul Needham, Jack Parker, Daniel Traster, Michael Turner, and Michael Winship all of whom are still with us in Rare Book School 1989, seven years later. The school underwent a major renovation of its Butler Library premises during Rare Book School in the summer of 1986. Some of you will remember the day when the new carpets rolled down the hallway outside your classrooms. This part of the university's dowry to our new dean, Robert Wedgworth. The rest of our classrooms got air conditioning and decent furniture and the Book Arts Press, with great effort, got a new floor. In 1986, I ceased being assistant dean and began being a tenured associate professor and acquired a pair of offices on the sixth floor of this building and a full-time assistant to help me run the rare book program and its various cottage industries. Michael Bowe was my first assistant, succeeded in 1987 by Howard Senzel, who decided to go to library school full-time in the fall of that year. Richard Noble has been my assistant for going on two years, and it would be wicked of me to hope that he never graduates. <laughs> this thought is probably not shared by Richard Noble's wife, this year's Rare Book School Commissar, Robin Gagan. Martin Antonetti became the Lord High Everything Else of Rare Book School in 1984, and in 1986, the year of the Rare of the School of Library Service renovation, for all practical purposes, Lord High Everything, a position which his current title, Acting Director, only partially recognizes. This is David Ferris's third Rare Book School year and Carol Briggs's first, though she has been a Rare Book School student in her time, and like Ferris, she is a graduate of the Columbia Rare Book Program, and so she knows the territory. I hope you will agree that the Rare Book School staff all has excellent manners. I insist on this, my own being so bad, that there needs to be a compensation. My temper has had a chance to improve since I have been on sabbatical leave this academic year. Richard Landon, director of the Thomas Fisher Library at the University of Toronto, has been a visiting professor here this spring in my place, to our students' great profit. In the early 1980s, we found ourselves developing a publication program. First, because of the fine printing conference at Columbia and its proceedings, and shortly thereafter, because of a speech given by Bernard Breslauer in Rare Book School 1984 on the uses of bookbinding literature, a speech which everyone clamored for us to publish, and which we did handsomely, thanks to a generous subsidy from Roderick Steinauer of the Steinauer Press. The publication program made further progress in 1985 with the inauguration of the annual Saul M. Malkin Lectureship in Bibliography and its annual publication. Meanwhile, the Book Arts Press Laboratory collections kept growing, in part because of allocations for teaching resources provided by Rare Book School, which has a budget of about $150,000 a year. In 1985, 
we went into the business of producing our own videotapes, beginning with a three-quarter-hour presentation on hand punch-cutting and typecasting entitled From Punch to Printing Type, directed by Peter Herdrick and featuring Stan Nelson of the Smithsonian Institution. The following year, 1986, we produced How to Operate a Book with Gary Frost, using a script by Frost and me, which uh, it was mightily improved by suggestions from Chris Clarkson, Michael Gullick, who will be giving a Book Arts Press lecture here in September, Guy Petherbridge, our new head of the SLS Conservation and Preservation Programs, and Nicholas Pickwode. In the works is a third videotape, tentatively called How to Collate a Book, and tentatively featuring me. I, too, can be a star. And that is the general contour of the development of the rare book programs at the School of Library Service since 1971. Earlier, I mentioned my belief when I first began teaching at the School of Library Service that the common thread of rare book librarianship was the physical book and its components, and my intention to concentrate my own teaching in the areas of format and collation, type, paper, printing, book illustration, and binding. This is the topic I wish to pursue next Monday when this series of lectures continues. Meanwhile, I wish to close with a pitch. These have been good years for the rare book programs of the School of Library Service. In our renovated quarters, strongly supported by the administration of the school and stimulated by the presence of the conservation, preservation, and archives programs. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. Rare book librarianship is a small part of a modest, unfashionable profession. With, this, with the close of the Graduate Library School of the University of Chicago, we are the last of the major library schools located in the private university sector. Our programs cannot exist at their present level without increasing level of national support. Rare Book School, for example, is very successful. It is also very expensive. It barely covers its direct costs, and if it weren't for the support, not only of the School of Library Service, but also of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, it could not begin to exist in its present form or at its present tuition levels. We have a wonderful base of support. We have just published a Book Arts Press address book, giving work and home addresses and telephone numbers where we have them for most of the 933 persons who have attended Rare Book School between 1983 and 1988, plus the approximately 400 members of the Book Arts Press Friends Group, plus the 200-odd survivors of my regular descriptive bibliography class with whom I am still in touch, slightly over half the total number, plus the nearly 200 lecturers who have delivered a total of 272 Book Arts Press lectures so far in a series which began with Michael Turner's lecture on collecting printed ephemera on November 16, 1972. You are listening to Lecture 273. These categories frequently overlap, but the Book Arts Press Address Book contains just under 1,500 different names, and it represents useful information about a great many of the most active persons in the business. Copies of this address book are not for sale. They are reserved for distribution to the friends of the Book Arts Press. If you are a friend and you don't want to wait for your copy to be mailed to you, they go out tomorrow. Then stop by room 511, our rare book school notion shop, after this lecture and pick up your copy. And if you are not a friend of the Book Arts Press, please consider becoming one. 
basic membership is $30 per year, and there are forms ready for you to fill out in 511. And you can pick up your Book Arts Press address book tonight. Also available in room 511 are Book Arts Press t-shirts, aprons, mugs, new this year, and other delights, as well as a wide variety of Book Arts Press publications, plus some used books which have been donated to us for sale by Marianne Malkin, Maud Cole, and others for use on such occasions as this one. Otherwise, you will find food and potables in room 502, the Book Arts Press Room. And further, laid out in room 505 next door, is a sampling of some of the books and other materials we have received in recent months from various friends of the Book Arts Press, not least of which is a collection of more than 700 books from the Sandgard Library given to us through the good efforts of Michael Turner by the Bodleian Library. And finally, we've opened the glass-fronted cupboards in this room and in rooms 508 and 510 so that you can see some of the new chronologically arranged cloth-bond book collections about which many of you will have read in recent issues of the Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter and about which I shall have more to say next week. Thank you.